guys, welcome back to another Train Brave podcast. I'm Rini McGregor. And I'm Chris Hendon. And today, guys, I am very excited because I have one of my very own team members um, on our podcast, and she has so much knowledge. Um, I'm worried that we're going to be talking all day, but um, I know you're going to get a lot from listening to Bernie. So Bernadette Dancy, welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's a pleasure and honour to be well, I'd say amongst you, but we're, we're at distance, obviously, across the screen. But yeah, I've listened to the podcast so much that um, it's a bit weird to suddenly be here in the podcast. Well, I couldn't think of anybody better to, to come and talk about, well, just there's so much we want to talk to you about, isn't there, Chris? Like We've been chatting about this for, for, for weeks now. Like We've got to get Bernie on the podcast and, and we've got so many questions. So. Yeah, I mean, it's the first time I actually had a chance to kind of meet you face to face, Bernie. So this is kind of going to be a nice... A nice introduction for me because obviously you're part of the team and we're all kind of working together now but it's really nice to kind of deep, uh, dig a bit deeper into kind of who you are and what you do and I want to I'm, I'm super keen to find out a bit more about HRV and how that applies to training and I think we'll go to dig, dig into that a little bit later but um, Bernie would you mind um, just kind of just giving us a, a, bit, a brief intro and introduction to kind of your your career path as it were and kind of what, what's got you to where you are now. Sure, yeah. So I'm I'm basically a lifetime geek, I think. Lifetime loser nerd. Um, I've been in edu- well, I was in education forever. So basically I went straight from my degree into a PhD. Um, and my PhD was in sports psychology. My degree was in sports science, human biology. So I was very much like always multidisciplinary, like always like really interested in the join up between the human body and the mind. So my dissertation I guess when the grad dissertation, we're going to go back that far, it was in sports psychology. But I really always 50 50 in my degree because I always wanted to join the two up, you know, really understand the combination between the two disciplines. And so, yeah, I finished my degree and then got offered a studentship to do a PhD in sports psychology, which I couldn't turn down. Um, and it all kind of started from there. I never really planned on doing a PhD, it just kind of one of those opportunities that come mm. up and we take it. So, um, it was actually an MPhil initially, so I did the MPhil and then progressed on to PhD. So being Irish, I did it all kind of backwards, and then I went back into the, after a few years of, of that, when I finished my PhD eventually, um, I did an, a master's in something called preventive cardiology, which is a lifestyle master's. And I did that imperial, um, where basically what they decided to do was to set up a master's degree to help people to use lifestyle medicine to tackle chronic disease. So looking at how we would use nutrition, movement, uh, smoking cessation, um, behavior change components to tackle kind of cardiac risk. And I was really interested in that because partway through my PhD, my, my, my dad died of a, a heart attack with a cardiac arrest and he was just 47 years old. So I was at a place where I, I really needed to finish this PhD, but I really lost the love for it because I knew actually my passion wasn't just working with athletes, you know, Trying to get an athlete to a certain level mentally was was interesting. It was a hobby to me, but it, I found out quite quickly when my dad died that, you know, I really wanted to do more around exercise psychology and trying to help people to, you know, to move themselves and to get fit and healthy. Like, what was it about his lifestyle that maybe could have helped him? Because he was only 47. Um, and my dad's dad was only 55. He died of the same problem. So for me, it was like a real kind of like passion. I really wanted to get more involved at that. When, when I found that Imperial College were doing this master's, I was like, this is like, this is written for me. <laughs> so people are like, you're going to do a master's after a PhD? I'm like, yeah, why not? So I, did. So I, went, a bit, I went back and did that. 
and um, and whilst I was doing all that, I was still lecturing in sports science. So I was lecturing in sports science and sports psychology. But again, as I was learning and growing, I recognised that we need a greater understanding of of health and sports scientists are graduating and going into gyms and doing great things. But we need an understanding of, of science in terms of health, not just performance. And so with some colleagues, I managed to convince universities at St. Mary's and Frickham at the time, I managed to convince them that um, we could write a degree in health and exercise science. So I teamed up with the head of biology at the time and we wrote a degree called clinical exercise science. So we decided that that's the way we were going to do it. And for me, that was great. It was like, brilliant. We can take all this information, we can write a degree, and essentially what we'll do is we have our clinicians that will come out who can then go and work with these clinical populations. So that's kind of where I, my background was. And long story short, I did that for many years, I think 15, 16 years, I was an academic doing that, doing research, um, teaching students. But at the same time, I had a lifestyle clinic at the university, so taking patients from their GP practices, um, basically doing what, helping the students to see in real life what um, I wanted them to learn in classrooms, but we took patients so they got to see actually a real overweight person and that, you know, you can't just write a program and that suddenly fix everything, you know, there's lots of other components to it. But then in 2016, I had my second son and I really, really struggled with that. I think it was a combination of everything. It was a perfect storm, a combination of sleep deprivation. I think postnatal anxiety was a huge part of it. And then undiagnosed PTSD. So when my dad died, he had a cardiac arrest and I was there and I tried to revive him, but unfortunately I couldn't. So I lived with that for 15 years, kind of being a really strong, high achieving, like, well, just get on with it. It'll be okay. But it sat in the background. And I think the combination of trying to work when you've got two young kids and you're trying to work part-time, but it's not really part-time, ends up being full-time, especially if you're a type A personality and you're really driven. And it's really, really hard. And of course, at the same time, I was trying to run marathons and ultra marathons and everything, you know, and the wheels come off like I completely tanked. And um, it was at that point that I made huge changes in my life, which has led me to where I am today, because, you know, I look back at it and it was the hardest until this time we could talk about it, you know, at great length. I'm always happy and I talk to my clients about it all the time, but I realized that things needed to change, that I couldn't live like that if I wanted balance and I couldn't, you know, I needed to apply everything I knew from an academic perspective into my own lifestyle. And I got a lot of help and therapy and, and support and eventually then decided that academia wasn't really for me, that um, I was more of a clinician, more help people. So then I've set up now, I've been working for the last three years as a health and exercise coach, specializing in stress management. So that's a real, probably not so quick, but that's that's sort of my CV or my life right up until now, I guess. It's amazing. I mean, I, I'm sure really you might, you might know a bit more. I, I had no idea. So. That cat. I'm going to have to dive straight in at that catalyst, obviously, of your your dad. Obviously, that that was a that was your catalyst and your spark. That obviously, kept you going for 15 years plus. Drove you, and obviously, as you say, your mindset, that A type personality, kind of, you know, it helps you to a certain degree. It fueled you, but then, obviously, as you said, like that, obviously, that was in the back of your mind, and uh, when and obviously, then juggling the racing as well on top of that, or you know, obviously running as well. I mean, so that's a very, very, very busy lifestyle. The mind must have been going 100 miles an hour for a long, long time. What can I ask? If you don't mind, what was the was there a particular moment when you realised everything had kind of come was coming to a kind of a head kind of thing? Like, is there a, a, a point where you kind of feel like you're breaking? Or 
Oh, God, yeah. I definitely, it, you can kind of see it coming. I remember listening to somebody talk about mental health and depression a while ago, and this guy was a documentary, I think, on the TV or BBC or something. And he described it as he could see it coming in the post. He had he suffered with depression, and he knew when he was on the way towards a depression. And he said it's like somebody posted a letter, and he knew it was on the way, and you can kind of see and feel it coming. But you, but you keep going, and you don't want to listen to that, and you don't really want to accept it. You don't really want to believe it. And I think working in an environment where I was working, you know, St Mary's University is, is like elite sports. You're talking about sports science, there's a lot of athletes around. Again, in academia, everything's quite competitive. You know, you're talking about high performance, high achievement, publishing papers. This is always, you know, really vibrant, busy, high achieving people. So you're in that world. You don't really know any difference. So you kind of just keep going. And I think when I was in my 20s and 30s and I was training, and again, I was never an elite athlete, but you're looking at these athletes around campus and where I live is very near Bushy Park in Teddington and everyone's quite active and it's just as a lifestyle, right? So you kind of you go along with that. And I always kind of credited myself as having this like really healthy lifestyle, which I did. Like I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I ran a lot. Um, I wouldn't say I was stressed because I, I could afford that, you know, element of stress on a PhD or whatever because... I was just me on my own. You know, I was, my husband was doing a PhD at the same time, then fiance, but so we, we would work late in the evenings. It didn't really matter because we were both working late. We would work at the weekends or whatever. So, you know, got away with it. And I, the time, the, the point at which it brought, it started to come down was when my lifestyle wasn't really under my control. So young children yep. that didn't sleep. Um, I could cope with like dealing with the PTSD. When I look back now, I see how well managed my life was to protect me from what they call the triggers, that trigger kind of anxiety or, you know, responses to situations like noises or smells or sounds. Um, so I lived a very kind of controlled lifestyle to protect myself from that. But when you take sleep from me anyway, out of the equation with young children, um, that's when I started to realize I was just done it. I was broken, you know, and I, and I realized slowly, and and then I was really unwell, and I was sort of GP, and they're like, I think you're depressed, and I'm like, I'm, I feel depressed, but there's more to this, like there's something else going on, and I wish I'd knew, known really at the time, but I probably would have found my way there, but I just went to it myself and found a way of going, do you know what, you're, you're clever, you're intelligent, you know what you need to do, actually just take time off, so I took six months off from work. And, and slowly rebuilt myself. I got good help. I got a therapist. I took on a running coach for the first time in my life because I was like, actually, do you know what? Maybe I'm not the best person to coach myself. Coaches need coaches too, right? So I was like, I can get to, I can get away with marathon, but as soon as you try and do ultra marathon without a coach, like that's not, that's a recipe for disaster. So the coach I took on, uh, Karen Weir, she was amazing, and she just said to me, I said to her, like very honest, like I'm pretty broken at the minute but i really need to run and she's like oh i see where this is going we got this one heard this one before haven't you can yeah. i can i just can i just jump in there two secs like just yeah. can you understand you can understand that the culture that culture that you're in to like to push 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 like you like as in you know we're all whether you're in a club or a university you know chasing a phd like or in in the work office like we're all a lot of us you know lots of people are in their own kind of similar environments where that's that kind of drive to succeed and keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing but how important it is to have those people around you that are able to kind of give you that out external perspective because really i think you probably agree like we've got so many of our girls and guys and girls that we're working with who similar they have that kind of 
drive, haven't they? That kind of that, that there's that incessant need just to keep going, keep going, keep going until, unfortunately, as you know, Bernie, they we just break, and unfortunately, we are it's our job. Well, we're, we're hoping we're trying to prevent that break from ever happening and trying to get on top of it earlier. Really, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of been sitting here listening to Bernie thinking, God, I can resonate with so much of what you're saying. Um, a couple of things I want to I want to talk about, really, uh, with all that, all everything you've all both just said. I mean, I suppose, firstly, I think to a certain degree, the lived experience is so important to, to really, truly understand and um James, my mentor, who was on the very first um, podcast of series three, he messaged me the other day and he said, I want to ask you a question. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And he said, what is the purpose of what you're doing? And I've had to go away and really think about that because, you know, as, as you both know, there's been a lot of change in my business just in the last six months. And it's been huge. If I didn't think last year was huge when I set the clinic up and, you know, suddenly we were the referring place for sports physicians and physios and um, coaches into the, you know, that, that was big enough. And then the last six months have, again, just, it, well, it's just, I mean, it's been, there's been a 62% increase in people wanting support. And so that means I've had to expand because I can't do it all alone. And along that has meant that there's an element of I'm having to let go of certain things because it's not, it is my business, but it's also, it's, it's a service. Like that's always what it's been. Hence why we started Train Brave and why we started Train Brave podcast is to educate, to support, to provide a structure for people, provide a, a resource that people can come to and go, oh my God, that's me. You know, that's, that's me. This is why this, this conversation is so important. Um, but in the middle of all that, I feel, I did definitely feel in the last few weeks, I felt so overwhelmed by the number of changes that have been going on that I'd lost sight of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, and I did, you know, I, I was very open with the, with the team. And I, I said a few weeks ago, I'd, I'd I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like, I'm, um, I can't, I don't know if this is what I want. So when James asked me that question, I've been thinking about it all week. And it's very similar to you, Bernie. It's the reason why I do what I do is because I don't want people, well, I guess I want to be able to provide the support that I never had when I was going through what I went through. Because... This sounds a bit weird saying this, but I think if I'd had a Rini or a team Rini, um, I would never have suffered as much as I did. And as much as I'm like, and this is kind of me being really honest, as much as I am in a much, you know, I'm very confident and I'm in a good place generally. And, and you know, those previous behaviors around food and exercise don't impact me anymore the experience of having had and lived an eating disorder to a severe level and not understanding the purpose of what that was and and why I needed it until really only the last 10 years, to be honest, has made such an impact on so many decisions I've made in my life. And I feel like if I'd had a team Rini around me age 15, 16, 17, 
I may not have made some of these big decisions. Now, we would always say, you know, you are a product of your experiences. And so maybe the reason I'm here today is because I've made all those decisions and and, and that's where I'm at. But I guess I don't want individuals, particularly a lot of the people that come to us, they are young and I don't want them to wait till they're 40 or 30 to work out how it is they find peace with themselves because that shouldn't be the cause of action that shouldn't be the process you know we should all be able to enjoy life and be at peace with ourselves and have acceptance of ourselves and not feel this constant drive to continually perform achieve succeed and so I think like that lived experience is really important because it does provide you with that purpose of why we're doing what we're doing and um yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the reasons I've asked you to be part of my team is, as you, I think all of everybody can probably already hear um, how aligned Bernie and I are in so many things that we do. And obviously, we met recently um, because we both became A6 frontrunners, and you're already you were previously involved with um, the A6 Sound Mind Sound Body kind of project. So. Um, and I know we just had a phone call one afternoon. It was, I think, during lockdown and we just started chatting. And we think like three hours later, it was like, oh my God, this woman's like, she's she's like, she's like me. Like, I literally, it's like talking to myself. It was really, really cool. And um, and then over the last few months, we've sort of talked more. And um, yeah, I think it was, it was, a, it was a no-brainer, really, asking you to be part of the team. And, and already we've been able to provide just that little bit extra support now and you know we're working towards with all of us plus the other members of the team working towards much more of a interdisciplinary approach so that that the individual that comes in whether that's through burnout whether that's through overtraining whether that's through reds whether that's through an eating disorder whatever it might be they come into the clinic and they experience you know best practice based on their needs so it may be that they start off with me and then they go to Bernie and then they go to Chris but through the process over weeks and months whatever fundamentally they come out of it with a better quality of life and a much more resilient and robust attitude um, towards themselves and towards their sport and towards life in general. Can we explore just whilst we're here right because that is a massive point about this whole MDT, multidisciplinary team, this whole kind of network. I mean, Bernie, before I interrupted you, you are just about to dive into kind of the, the group of people that you brought into your life, obviously. I think you mentioned running coach. Um, but really, obviously, you've done exactly that by bringing a team in around you to support you, to kind of allow not only to support you, but to obviously improve your service. That's, I mean, that's what you're saying, isn't it? Like to, to reinforce a message, you know, a message to that individual across two, three, four professionals that give, you know, strength in different areas. But Bernie, um, when it comes to your network, you talked about running coach. Who else kind of helped you initially through that kind of bottleneck or, or you know, that, 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 that moment? those moments so many people but i think the hardest part of it was was asking for that help or not even asking for that help but but giving myself permission to receive that help because i think hmm. when you are working hard and you want to achieve a certain degree or a certain level of, of, of performance or standard whether that's work or being a parent it doesn't have to be in sport or whatever i think people mistake that it's it's always about exercise it's always about you know some sort of 
achievement in terms of a goal you set it's usually standards across the board so people we work with all the time and i work with marini's clients but definitely mine as well it's it's high achievement amongst it's in work it's in the relationship it's with the children it's it's across the board and they don't see that so i think giving yourself permission to go hang on a minute i don't have to do all of this perfectly myself and I listened to a podcast, it was back, you know, this was in 2016 when I, I think podcasts are really kind of catching fire and I was doing long, long runs and, and I listened to a podcast and I can't remember whose it was on, so I credit them if I could, but I cannot remember, but I just remember them saying, you know, coaches need coaches too and, and the best coaches are ones that will step aside and go, yeah, I've got all this knowledge, yeah, I've got all this understanding, but you can't always apply that to yourself, like a therapist can't therapize, is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> can't therapize themselves right we can't do it because we have to we have to have somebody outside the picture looking in and i think that's the same isn't it when you're in the picture you can't see the frame and so you know really can do that for me you could do that for me i could do that for you because we get so caught up in our own biases and our own beliefs and our own what we call rules for living and everything has to be that way i need to this should be and when you sit down with somebody whether it's for me it was a coach i had a therapist uh, psychotherapist because I had to do trauma therapy so this was the type of stuff that I went in knowing this was going to be a deep dive into trauma therapy which is basically reliving the experience so that you can process it and therefore it becomes a memory as opposed to being stuck in the, in the part of your brain where it's happening in the moment which is essentially what happens in PTSD where any trigger flashback sounds uh, smell or anything kind of an environmental cue make you feel like you're in that moment there and then so you have a physiological response so sweating palpitations and it brings you right back to that moment so that's not something that I could help anyone with even though I've gone through it myself that's a, a need of professional so there's always going to be you need somebody who knows exactly what they're doing to protect you so whether it's a physio I might have plantar fasciitis I need a physio you know if I have a toothache I'll see a dentist so there's a, a really important component of self-care or improvement that we we can't do it all on our own we have to reach out and too often i see people see that as a failure like as in i'll fail because i've had to go and have physio or i failed because i've under eaten and i need to see a nutritionist or i failed because now i need a running coach and i can't coach myself so the biggest thing i learned across all of those things and like Rainy was saying maybe that kind of needed to happen to me or you know, for me i guess to get where i am today but whether it was therapy or um coach or seeing a GP what I learned was if you if I put my ego to one side um, and it wasn't an arrogance it wasn't like I was strutting around like a peacock thinking I had to be perfect but it's a subtle thing in the background that my ego was driving things that somehow I was a failure if I didn't manage it all um, but actually when you recognize it is your ego pushing that and, and you can relax it a bit you I learned so much from all those people um, and my life changed, you know, it was, and it was actually refreshing. Like, it's so nice to, so nice for someone else to feel with some other component of your life. And for me to get a training program in my inbox once a week that I didn't have to spend, I don't know, half an hour sat down doing on a, on a Sunday night to have that sent to me and go, what am I doing today? Brilliant. I'll do that. You know, that was just another thing off my to-do list. And that's really, really, it's, it's a small thing. No, no. Huge this is gold. This is gold, right? This is, we need, we're going to touch up. Can we stay on this for a minute? Because this is <clears throat> super, super important, I think. And like, again, this is why, why the whole team mindset, the MD team, multidisciplinary team is such an important 
factor of again why team Rini you know like we talk about this really you know like you know, I've learned so much from you and vice versa we're kind of learning off each other and like you cannot do it all alone like there is no there's no one in this world that has done what they've you know, the greats the best of the best have done what they've done on their own you know but they may say it because they've got a massive ego maybe but there's always that there's people in the background that have got them help them get there and I know Rini we talked about it at the beginning, uh, touched on it a little bit um a couple of times in other podcasts but like it's so important like that feeling you're feeling that you know you're talking about having that training program there to take that pressure off you it allows that clarity doesn't it to and also that time to look after yourself like you know worrying about all these other factors you forget about the most important thing which is like your own health your relationships with your with well food with uh, your partners um i mean really what are your thoughts here yeah i think i mean the the thing that keeps coming to my head is is a conversation i had a while back with um someone a friend of mine and we were talking about this pursuit of perfection that so many of us feel the need to to try and achieve and yet there there is no such thing as perfection to a certain degree because perfection is so different for every single person it's a bit like what we were talking about last week with with the ideals you know like why do we all automatically assume that certain images of bodies or certain ways of eating or even certain societal pressures of like conforming you know like having to be in a partnership or whatever why do we see these as ideals that we all have to achieve and if you just stop and think about it actually you question it and you're like but who says I've got to do that like why is that the case but the problem is because we set ideals and we set this standard of perfection as such we then do set ourselves up to feel like we're failing and and the conversation went was really interesting because what 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 my friend said was that to be honest if you're constantly trying to achieve perfection it's really a very lonely road right because you can't achieve you can't let anybody in if you want to achieve perfection so you have to let go. And, and when we're talking to the people we work with, when I say to people, you need to let go, they panic because they're thinking, oh my God, that means I've got to basically let go of all my food rules and I'm going to suddenly become obese because that's their immediate thought. And what we're really saying to them is you need to let go of this pursuit of perfection because actually you've got to find your own road you've got to find your own way you've got to um you've got to let people in to support you it's been the hardest thing for me to admit to have to do but i know that i can't i can't do life alone and i don't mean like i need a partner or i need a you know like um <laughs> you know a business partner or whatever but what I know is that I can't do any of my life without friends without support without a coach without business mentors whatever I can't do it alone and that doesn't make me weak that makes me actually incredibly strong and also quite smart to realize what it is I need to be able to perform to my best you know when you said about allow like allowing people to having that time when you start to kind of help get help from other people you know it allows you a time to focus on other areas of your life as well like don't you th- i mean personally i feel like a lot of the 
a lot of a lot of time when it comes to this obsession to f- f- perfection, especially within performance and training, it becomes the only thing, and everything else gets falls to the wayside. And when you have started to have assistance with that, having a coach, someone to help you with programming and assisting with your nutrition potentially, it allows you a little bit more clarity as to sort of let things other those sort of things go a little bit. And then it's still on point with them, but you're you're taking the pressure off yourself. But then it allows you a bit more space to think about other things apart from training, which, as we know, is is a hugely important factor in your know, life and your your life around training. What does your life look like outside of the, um, your training sessions? They, these are all kind of create that equal or that balance that what with that what we find is missing a lot of the time with a lot of the men, men and men, men and women we're working with. Is that fair to say? Yeah, hundred percent. I think. Gosh, we we overcomplicate everything. I think you know, and I did too. And you've got to learn new stuff to unlearn old stuff. I think. So when it when I go right back to I talk about my human biology degree, the most basic fundamental. I'm sure we probably learned it in week one, semester one, is balance and homeostasis. Like fundamentally, that's all our body's trying to do, and we mess it up because because we are if we if the body was left to its own resources, you know. It, fine but we don't eat when it's time to eat and we don't listen when it's time to rest and you know we, we complicate it but but also culturally and society wise you know we we haven't got a huge amount of control of maybe when we, we can eat or how much food or when or you know when we get to work when we get awake and so there are always going to be all of those things are external stressors but fundamentally our body will will write itself like it's so capable and able to do that um and it does it for a hell of a long time before you do crash and burn, right? So for me, I would have ignored a hell of a lot of cues um, because it was always that competition between me and the husband, you know, I'm tired, no, I'm tired, too. no, but I'm tired, no, I'm tired of you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it just becomes the norm, doesn't it? It's just accepted norm that we're walking around like stress robots, but that's just how it is. And if you're lucky, you'll get two weeks in the summer where you can stress and then and everything fixed right don't so. you find sorry don't you find that everyone always says that oh yeah i'm really busy i'm really busy i'm really busy how often do you when you say to someone how's how's like things oh yeah pretty cruisy actually i'm just like between enjoying life um you know i've just been kind of you know just you know cruising along no one ever says that it's like yeah pumping busy yeah. rammed i can't you know i can barely it's breathe honor, I think, it's I crazy know, blogs, yeah of course the blogs, blogs i wrote which is you know stress is not a badge of honor and whether we consciously or subconsciously wear it as a badge of honor, it is seen as that. Do you know what I mean? Like in the workplace, people not leaving, not leaving early. So again, postgraduate, young academic, no children. I would be in the office till easily eight, nine o'clock at night, mm. and that's fine because I'll probably finish around five, go for a run, go back to the office, crack on writing a lecture or doing some marketing. Eventually, security would kick you out, and you go back the next day and do the whole thing again. It wasn't a problem. Um, but like life changes then and you, and you can't continually sustain that element or that degree of effort because it catches up with you and things have to shift and change and, and balance has to be sustained and if you ignore all those things for long enough then you've got to eventually pay the price it's like when people say to me oh if they've got a niggle or an injury and you'll get this Chris all the time and they're shocked and surprised by it and you're like well that was in the post like six months ago and you haven't changed your training or you've been doing that same repetition or, you know, doing that same error has been in your technique and you've continually done it, but they just, Oh, it's so unlucky. I've got injured. No, it's, you've brought, you've contributed to that over time. Um, yeah, unless you've like tripped over and stacked it and something like it has been an accident, fine. But in whether it's a, a musculoskeletal injury, soft tissue injury or psychological injury. So for me, it was, 
where do you then go? Well, what's the line? The line is going to be at some place for some for all of us before we finally watch and quote mass break. And for me, it was when I had children because I could probably have tolerated my own fatigue for much, much longer. I'd have known about it, but got on with it. But when we've got young people to look after and young babies and children, suddenly it wasn't about me anymore. So you have to look after these little tiny defenseless things. And I was like, you know what? I, I don't want to be, I've never wanted to be lacking in energy with my children. You know, I used to nanny when I was a student and I used to have all this energy and look after other people's kids and then have my own. And I was like, oh, I can't even muster the energy to do what I want to do with them. So it came down to a decision about, you know, do you want to continue on this path and have this life or you can change things. And I'm not saying it flippantly, like, like it's really easy to suddenly like give up your career, which is what I did. You know, go from having two salaries in a household to suddenly having one. You know, these are big life-changing decisions, mm. right? But when the when it comes to the crux, you're like, well, what's more important? And for me, what was more important was my physical and mental health, so that my children saw me happy, so that my husband and I could be happy, and and I've slowly built up a business around that, so that it works for me. Um, that's tough, like finding the balance between driving your business, pushing on to be successful, making some income without breaking yourself. I haven't got the answer to that. People ask me all the time what the answer is. I'm like, I don't know yet. Um, I'm maybe, I'll, maybe I'll never know, but, but it's, a, it's a really, it's intentional practice, I'll say that. You have to work at being intentionally conscious of your rest and kind of self-care, I guess. Don't you think that was an intro, like, obviously you getting pregnant in that time, I would have said that's quite, I mean, that, you must have been certainly healthy enough to obviously yeah. carry it because obviously you, that, that could have easily been a completely different scenario there and, you know, working hard, overtraining, you know, lo- lo- lost your period and then you wouldn't, you, you know, you would have been struggling to have kids. But the fact that you had children was like a, a significant moment in your life that actually yeah. forced you to change. But can you imagine because not I having that? I never did yeah. lose my period. So I was lucky that I never got to that point where, yeah, because I think, as I said, I didn't have any of the pressure it was just me and mm-hmm. you know I just I had that you know and had it the right side of it but the I was on that road I would say I'd say if I if I didn't maybe get pregnant and have my first son then I probably would have continued down that road you know what I mean so I was still training and working and whatever so it's probably pure luck that that did happen at the time um yeah I think I just want to say, I think I'm sat here listening and it's just, I mean, it's fascinating because so a lot of you won't know this, but like for, for me, the I've been the other side of this in the sense that I've been the person who's watched somebody burn out and break down in front of you, um, which is, you know, it's, it's actually quite emotional talking about it now because to a certain degree you know, you can see that person is completely and utterly broken. And, and, and as their partner, you don't know what to do to to support them or help them. And you, you know, all you can do is kind of be there and turn up and, um, give them as much support as you can and they have to work through it. But I think what I find really fascinating here is that the difference between how you handled that scenario for yourself Bernie and the situation I was in where my ex-husband went through a very similar experience to what you're talking about um was that he and maybe and this is why I'm bringing it up is not 
because I want to bring it, have a go at him or anything, because it's not about that. I mean, it was a very difficult time for him. Um, but I'm wondering, like, the difference between male and females, maybe, a little bit in this, because I think there's so much stigma around mental health and strength and resilience and putting on a strong face. And I know one of the things that he used to say to me was that, he just kept going and kept going and kept going because he felt he had this huge um, responsibility to look after us. And that felt huge for him. And although I'd never put any pressure on him, like I was also working and, you know, and, and, and everything else, but it was his it was his perception of the situation and his experience of the situation. I'm not going to just say perception, it's his experience of what was going on for him. Um, but when it came to him getting help, it was really difficult to provide him with the confidence to go, do you know what? It's okay. Like you need to go and get some support on this. You need more than just to go to your GP and get antidepressants. Like this is big, this is huge. And, you know, you know, I don't want to speak for him because obviously it's not fair, but I know that it was it was a very hard time and and like you he had to make the decision to to stop working because it was the only way he could get back on track um and that was very very difficult because i was only working part time at the time so i went from working part time to working three jobs so that we could survive as a family and 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 i get i guess like it, it's just i suppose i'm really interested in your thoughts on the male-female split maybe, but also like, how do you support someone? You know, if I had known you then and I was having this conversation with you, what advice would you have given me to have helped him? Mm, such a good question. Especially as because now, like, uh, we're four years on, a lot of the clients I work with through that are men. So describing, mm -hmm. you're describing the, the, the male clients that I now work with. And I think... If it was if if you were then helping me at the time, or what would you say to him? Looking back at it, I think when that person is in that on that journey or on that road towards burnout breakdown, they don't even they can't even see themselves. So they're on that treadmill. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's really hard. So people people might have said to me, you might you know, do you have a day off? I'm like no, 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 because you need you know you need to keep going, right? So you're in you're on this treadmill and you're going and you're so tired and you're so exhausted and you're so overwhelmed and forgetful. And you almost have to realize it yourself. Like it sounds hard. You need that support system around you to pick you up. There'll be a point at which it's like, as I said, it's a different line for everybody, but there will be something that will happen that will be the penny that drops. Like for me, for example, it was, I couldn't count. Like one day I was trying to add up something and it sounds silly, but it was so overwhelming to just add this simple like number up that I was just like, Jesus, I am, this is it. I, I, my head is just gone. I can't even think straight. And it wasn't that, but it, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. And I think it's having the conversations. It was, it was having a support network around that you need that, that people are there to catch you when you do fall. Because I don't think they can tell you to stop um, because you, you need that permission almost from yourself so what you need is for what I do with, with clients is to highlight to them 
is draw their attention to is be a mirror and reflect back. You're telling me this, you're telling me this, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing that. And they slowly go, bloody hell, you're right. Like, oh my God. And when it comes to men, I think you're right. There is a bit of a divide. Um, I think women are more future focused. So we are more, uh, you know, worried about the future in terms of, and we'll be more anxious perhaps. And what I find with men is they're very much in the moment and now, and they're like, I need to fix this now. And Chris, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but they're very much in the moment now and they'll provide and they'll work hard now. Whereas we're like, well, what if, what if, what if? Hmm. And they're like, well, no, I'm, you know, I'm on this train and it's going and I'm with it. And what I find is when they, when men come to work with me is they, they really, they mostly need therapy, but they don't want to see a therapist because then that's admitting some sort of weakness, right? So the health coach, you focus on stress. Oh, that's the next best, the next best thing. I can say I'm working with a health coach and not a therapist. And after usually, if they're not with a therapist, that one session with me, they're working with a therapist because I'm like, we need you to see a therapist and I'm going to help you with this. So therapists can help you with the, the backstory and why you've maybe gotten to where you've gotten to. I'm going to help you build up the pieces around you so you've got the energy for the therapy because I know how hard that is, right? So you need people eating well. It sounds like they've got to go into training to do the work, right? Eating well, sleeping well, managing their lifestyle. So with men, I think... They don't often, they do wear it as a badge of honor, but they often just kind of are culturally, unfortunately, and, and I think it's really, really wrong, is in a position where they have to provide and have to be seen to be the strong one. You know, we can go to our girlfriends and go, I'm really, really struggling, and we have a day and a moment, and they kind of put their arm around and sort out. Folks don't do that, you know, or as, or as much as they should, right? It's getting better. Um and the men I then will see, were like, when's the last time you've seen your GP? Oh, years ago. You know, when's the last time you asked for help? Oh, years ago. And it will take two or three sessions before they maybe even tell me something considerable that happened in their life or recent past that may or may not have been, I would say, traumatic. But they wouldn't even perceive it to be. They're like, yeah, well, that just happened. Oh, okay. That you didn't think a car crash was something you need to tell me about or that you had to carry the burden of that accident or whatever. Um, because they just brush it off. So I think you're right. I think it's it's really, really hard. I'd say it's hard for men and women in different ways. I'm not I'm not sure if it's hard or for one gender than the other, because I think I, st I stand at school gates with mums and they usually, you know, the conversations are, oh, what do you do? And I tell them and, and you kind of see the cogs whirring. They're like, oh, okay. And then like five minutes later, they're telling me, oh yeah, well, I, I have anxiety too. And I'm really, really stressed and I'm really, really burnt out. But that's what us mums do right and it's almost like they need that permission like one mom will say it and then suddenly everybody admits to it but we all want to turn up at the school gate or the workplace or the gym and look like we've hope we're holding it all together like that we're coping but i know from the work i do and the conversations i have with people that all of us are like swans we're all graceful on the top and just frantically frantically keeping the keeping everything together underneath, like paying the bills, feeding the kids, getting the dog out for a walk, mm -hmm. you know, all these things. And we're all doing it. This is, and what I oh, found was yeah. in lockdown, actually, was just like, I loved it. Because I was like, this is great. Like All of the stuff, you know, for most people, that was unnecessary on their to-do list went away. Um, yeah, there was a lot of other stress in it and that changed and evolved. But there was a, definitely a period of time where it was a bit like, that stuff didn't matter. And actually, what really matters is the people in this house, the roof overhead, can we put food on the table? Can we stay healthy? That's it. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we really need to remember that pretty much all of us 
have some degree of stress at any one time and are all frantically paddling beneath the surface. When I, um, whenever you, I think really we, we talk about this quite a lot, but whenever you start working with someone, like I always say training is easy, you know, like training is the easy bit. Like someone comes to me and they're struggling with an injury or they want a performance goal and they want to get to attain it so often it comes down you look once you have the vision to see beyond the training at the, the gym or the training sessions at the track or the pool or whatever you start to look a little bit just you look a little bit deeper into their lifestyle and you see the franticness of those feet you know that flying along the stresses that they've got around them and even you know as a, as a simple strength coach that who are, you start to go look there's you know like you, you get them doing a program and you get them working towards their working on their weaknesses etc but there's so much more there isn't there like in terms of like to breaking that down developing that better and streamlining a few things just to give them a little bit of breathing room to then start thinking about themselves thinking about their health thinking about the nutrition think about every, all those things but as i say it's it, there's this franticness that once you once you see it um you can't unsee it kind of thing and you know it's when that person stands in front of you like okay this person needs a bit of help with their training but they also there's that they need to streamline and this is obviously why that we've got the team around us because you know really obviously pushes people into the right into the right areas because it's not just about nutrition it's not just about strength training it's it's about there's other so many different things underlying things as you say ptsd is there a reason in the background that is fueling a catalog you know the catalyst for all of this mindset all of this belief and i need to we need to explore before we it is i want to explore the stress and the cues and the metrics and hrv i really want to kind of just touch mm. can we can we just go into that a little bit because obviously it, this is something that really you've been f- using in our training a lot recently to you haven't been doing a lot of training recently have you Reen? It, as in you're consistently training but you're not doing a lot massive mileage that you have been for a while however your hrv is telling a different story Reen. Is that right? Yeah, I think um, it was actually Bernie, it was you who recommended that I start using it. And um, I'd kind of known about HRV for, for years. Like I actually used HRV with athletes when we were working going into Rio because it was really good metric data and, and was exactly what we needed. But I never really thought about using it for myself, I guess. I mean, those usual things that we, you know, don't do for athletes, ourselves. That's right. It's not yeah, for us. It's exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. But um, I've found it so interesting. I mean, you know, to a certain degree, I kind of always know when I'm not great. Um, And one of the things that my sarcoidosis taught me was to listen to my body and to respond according to how I feel in the morning and how fatigued I am and, you know, how my, my, my kind of breathing feels because for me with the sarcoidosis a lot of it is around my lungs and and I notice I definitely that's my first place of stress like when I am stressed out I get tight chested I can't breathe um so then trying to run is like the worst thing in the world to try and do because it's just not possible um so we we spoke about this back in June is probably when I thought right okay I'm gonna do this and and I downloaded the the app, the HRV4 training app. Obviously, it's one of many apps, but it's the one that you have recommended. And I really like it because it's very easy to use. Like, I don't need to wear a heart strap. I don't need to wear my watch. It's just a finger. You do it once a day in the morning before you get out of bed. And 
it gives you a number. And obviously, the more data you have, the more information it provides you. So now mine has been, I've been using mine now, I think it's coming up to 14 weeks, something like that, 13, 14 weeks. And, and interestingly, I contacted you both, I think it was two weeks ago. I was like, right, I've got four reds in a row. What What is that all about? Because I've never had four reds in a row. Um, and I didn't train. I was really good. Um, but in the past, I'll be honest, even though I haven't felt great, I would have gone, oh, do you know what? Run might make me feel better. So I'm going to go and do that. Um, but I, but having that accountability again, we always go back to the accountability, but having that tangible data that tells me, do you know what? You're not in a great place. Maybe training isn't the best thing for you right today. Like that's not to say you shouldn't move and that's not to say that you shouldn't do anything, but just training, training is probably not the best thing for you has been really, really useful. Um, so I guess, Bernie, it'd be really, really good to hear if you could just describe firstly what it is and, and why it's so useful and then kind of how we use it. That would be really helpful. Yeah, so HRV stands for heart rate variability. And as soon as you go into a conversation with people about, you mentioned heart rate variability, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, heart rate. Yeah, yeah, I do my resting heart rate every morning. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not talking about that. So, so just to really be clear, it's, it's not resting heart rate. Heart rate variability is the timing between beats. Okay, so all of us have a heart rate. And if we look at our resting heart rate, let's, let's say hypothetically it was 60 beats. You wake up in the morning and it says your resting heart rate is 60 beats. You could assume that you had a heartbeat every minute, I'm sorry, every second, because it's one every every second. So that would make sense, right? But actually, physiology doesn't work like that. We're not we're not metronomes. And what we know is that there's a variation between heartbeats. So the timing between beats can be longer or shorter between beat, and that's perfectly normal. So you would think one heartbeat might be take a second between beats, one might be not 0.8 of a, of a second. And, and there's going to be variation between each beat, of course, if you move and things like that. But in essence, that's what we're, we're measuring. We're measuring the timing between heartbeat. And you kind of want to go, well, why, why is that important? Surely my resting heart rate tells me if I'm in good shape or not. Well, resting heart rate will tell you if you're fit. So we know the fitter you are, the larger your lung volume, the larger your heart's capacity. And therefore, you can pump more blood around the heart. So your heart doesn't have to work as hard. Your heart can go slower. Great. But what we need to know is you can be an athlete with a low resting heart rate, but it doesn't mean you're healthy. And I made that mistake, and we all, and I see a lot of people, just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. Heart rate variability gives us more insight. And what we want is we want a lot of variability. So what we want is high numbers. So we want there to be a lot of difference between heartbeats because that tells us that the body is in a responsive, reactive state. So it's got an ability to change and to adapt. So I talked about um, the ability for it to, to kind of hold homeostasis in place, for example. It can't be stiff and rigid to be able to do that. The body needs to be sensitive to release hormones when it's needed, neurotransmitters when it's needed, and react, okay? So you need that variation. If you think of a sports example, an analogy, it's like if you play team sports, and I used to play football, and or tennis, or anything like that, where they're always saying, you know, you need to be on your toes to react, right? You're flat-footed, it's harder to get where you're going to be. So you want to be on your toes. And it's a bit like that. It's like your heart is on its toes. High heart rate variability tells us that we're working in parasympathetic nervous states. 
therefore your body's relaxed, it's ready, and it's responsive, and it's, it, and it's working well. Um, when your heart rate variability is low, the timing between beats becomes similar, and that's saying that it's stressed. So low heart rate variability tells a blood person's stressed or in a stressed state. So this is where people get confused. They go, but I'm not stressed. I'm not like running around the streets shouting. I'm not ranting and raving at my kids or my husband or whatever, or my wife. It's not emotional stress. It can be, but we're talking about physiological stress, meaning that the sympathetic nervous system is activated. Okay, so low heart rate variability, sympathetic nervous system is in play. That's not a bad thing. We need the sympathetic nervous system to react, respond to threat, danger, demand. So you might run for that bus, you need some energy. You need to increase your oxygen to get there, okay? Um, you might try, your child might try to run across the street. You need your sympathetic nervous system to kick in so that you can grab them, right? So there's, we need that. And I just want to emphasize that stress isn't always a bad thing. Um, and as I said right at the start, our body is capable very well of, of switching between both systems very well to be able to respond to that stressor. The stressor goes away and we go back to normal again. What we know and we see in chronic stress or people who are overtraining or working towards burnout is they lose that flexibility and they're spending more time in sympathetic nervous system because there's so many demands upon them. You wake up in the morning, straight away you're on your phone, you're seeing those emails. Straight away you're on social media, you get in anxiety or comparison um, issues. So you're having drip fed yourself, being drip fed cortisol all the time. So these, you know, as we described earlier, these situations which cause us to frantically paddle around, these micro stresses in our life are always kind of ever present. Now, if you add that on top of something like a really traumatic thing, you know, it does not always be traumatic, but like moving house, like a breakdown in relationship, losing a loved one, even a pet, you know, um, financial problems. You're adding that normalized stress to that kind of life stress. You can start to see how quite quickly it builds up, right? So what we can do with HRV um, is we can monitor it. And every morning we can monitor it and we get a reading and it tells us how we're doing that day. It will say, your HRV is looking low, uh, is looking good. You can continue as planned. So it will give you information and feedback about how your, your nervous system is doing in response to um, what's called the norm. So it, it learns what your normal values are and it can tell how your body is in relation to that norm. Now, it doesn't only, the app that I use, which I recommended for Rini, is HRV for training. Um, the reason I recommended that is because it's, it's been tested in research. So it's a valid and reliable app. And they've looked at reliability tests to see how reliable it is in, um, in comparison to ECG. So you can see that if you were to wire yourself up to a, an ECG machine, would the app give you the same re readings? And as it does do. So we, can, we know that it's an evidence-based app. Um, so I recommend it to people for that. But also it collects what we call um, subjective data too. So you can collect your data and you've got your heart rate variability score, which is very objective, real measure. And then you enter in, well, what does that mean? We need context, you're not a robot. So, okay, were you drinking alcohol last night? Do you have an injury? Are you in your menstrual cycle? Did you get, get enough sleep? Um, there's, and there's lots of different tags that you can put in there to decide what you, it is you wanna measure. Maybe you travel a lot for work, you wanna add that in. So as a coach or as a practitioner, when somebody gets a red, so they say, Rini goes, I've got a red flag. I'm like, okay, well, one red flag isn't, isn't the end of the world. Maybe that means you, you've just really had a hard session and actually what you should find in the next day or so it bounces back. So have a lighter session today or have a day off. So you don't just take it at face value, you look at it within the context of what was going on. 
And if you find you have a second one, well, something's up there. Um, so it's a really objective way of, of knowing, as you say, really, you know, should I do that run? Because I think people get confused by all the messages put out there. And it's something I get really um, uppity about, shall we say, uh, when I see people really promoting exercise for stress, you know, and I see people going, oh, I feel like crap, but I've been up at five this morning, I smashed it, I run, I feel better. And you'll feel better too if you do that. And I'm like, stop. Because emotionally, we do feel better when we get out and move our body, even if it is five o'clock in the morning. I definitely do, anyway, some people do. Um, but yeah, you might feel emotionally better, you get a dopamine hit, but you're adding all of that training stress to an already depleted system. So it's unnecessary, it's junk miles, whatever, whatever. So HRV for training, you know, I use it with, with, with what we call, I guess, athletes or recreational athletes. And I use it with people who aren't even training um, because I, it gives me the same information. It doesn't matter if they're training or not. So I think it's a really powerful tool. I think that comment um, that you made uh, about how many, I mean, how many times, Chris, how many times when we are sat in clinic, we are talking to our clients and we say, look, the clinical presentation is not looking good. And as much as I don't want to stop you from training, in this situation, you really do need to stop training. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to stop everything, but, you know, we need you to stop running or we need you to stop cycling or whatever. We need you to stop. And they go, but I need it for my mental health. I need it for my stress levels. And it's it, it's so hard to explain to them because to a certain degree, it's like everything we do. It's almost like because we talk science because we talk sense because we talk evidence we're also going against the grain we're going against social media um and so you have all these individuals who are clueless in all this science but promoting you know yeah you know for your mental health you need to, i mean that was the biggest thing for me during lockdown i really struggled with the poor messages that were going out like it it, it re i mean i think most of you could hear on on the podcast it really upset me because people were giving wrong information about it and and Bernie just for context I know you've done a lot of research in this area and it's kind of like your area of research but if we're talking about reducing stress and we're talking about mental health what is what is the 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 kind of minimum amount of of like work we need to do um, and what does that look like in reality so just so that people who are listening can can get that into context see this is you hit the nail on the head there we need to know what it looks like in reality and we like everything when research papers get published they get either into the press into the media or into social media and they become headlines and we lose the context and Again, the, being academics, we go back. You need to look within the, the paper, and you guys have talked about this at length in this podcast, where you talked about, like, what is the context? Who was that study done on? What were the population? How long was it, the exercise protocol? What was the intensity? Then you then go, does that apply to me in my situation? Okay, but when you're not from that academic background, then you, you, lose, you lose sight of that context. And that's where our job in Team Rini or or any kind of clinician or anyone who works at that professional level should be doing. They should be offering advice within the context of the, the findings um, and the limitations of the study. So when you look at, I'm not disrespecting um, anybody, by the way, just to say, you know, it's really important that we think about um, transferring the real evidence across into the real world. So when you look at research that's been done on 
exercise for depression and stress management. There is so much evidence to support it. This is the problem, right? There's loads and loads of evidence to support that exercise will improve and reduce depression. So it will reduce your depression symptoms and it will improve your resilience to depression or future bouts of depression. It will also reduce your stress and improve your resilience to stress. So the fitter and then more healthy you are, it will improve your stress resilience. Take it at face value. This is amazing, brilliant. Everybody get out, everybody run. Exactly what happened in lockdown. Let's, let's think about what the study actually shows. So the study or the research that's done to, to, to give that evidence, it's moderate 20 to 30 minutes, moderate intensity exercise. That's either aerobic or it could be interval or not interval, it's moderate. So it's either aerobic or it's um, resistance training. In the population of people who've self-reported depression or anxiety symptoms. So they're not quote unquote trained or even recreationally trained performers. So it's really hard to then take that data and then apply it to maybe the people we would work with who are what we call recreate, what I call recreation athletes who are, you know, above and beyond. They're VO2 max supersedes the young population. They've got a low resting heart rate. They're training. They're essentially athletes, but with a full-time job, right? Um, or even people who exercise a lot. So that's not people, what people are doing. They're going out and training and saying, you know, I'm doing five HIIT training sessions every morning. So every morning I'm going to do a HIIT training session and I'm going to go for an afternoon one. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try and lose weight because this is a good time to try and lose weight in lockdown. So I'm going to cut my calories back massively as well. So suddenly you've got a situation where people are adding a hell of a lot of stress to their bodies. And like I said before, you get the initial high, you get feel good. You do feel better after moving your body, even though it might have been hard. So you get that dopamine hit. But what you're not accounting for is the, the lag or the training load, like we all trying to put in place when we coach people, is to get that overreaching, to stress the body a little bit, to get that adaptation. They're not factoring that in. So there isn't evidence, there's not enough research, and I keep trawling the, the, the papers and looking online. Every now and then I'm, I'm looking for the evidence. We need some studies that have been done taking trained recreational athletes or even trained exercisers who are currently burning out or overwhelmed or tired and depressed and then get them to exercise and see what it does because that's what we're seeing in clinical practice right we're seeing people who are already on the knees adding exercise to the equation because that's what everybody's telling them to do and they're only doing what they've been told but they're already on the knees or they're already struggling or already got high um, achieving attitude of type a personality so they're not going to just do 20 minute water intensity exercise. They're going to do eyeballs out and they're going to do a marathon because mar marathon and even a marathon is not enough. People want to do an ultra now or they want to do a multi-day event. So we have to try and either get the evidence to see what's really happening because we're picking up the pieces in, in practice. Um, but there, we need a longitudinal study. We need a study to look at, you know, what are the implications of somebody doing that on, on their body? Brilliant. Um the, I mean, the research would be fantastic, but what actually it, it got personally, it comes from this poor lack, poor lack of education on like a lot of the training that's already put, that's currently being put out there, putting out by inexperienced trainers who are just putting out, because essentially, like a great coach will be able to see that within the people that they're working with, whether it's virtually, if they can see them face to face, or if they are working face to face, then you'll be able to, you, there are other symptoms and signs that you could be working with. And through dialogue, through conversation, you'll obviously be pick up, picking up on those factors. So, you know, the research is kind of already there, like how to, has, no, the education is there, it's just people aren't kind of 
doing it. You know, people aren't in that place where they're, you know, they're not, we're, we're skimming the surface and just applying this, these, the rawest, simplest form of exercise, which is high intensity training and applying it too frequently, too, too much. And obviously this is what COVID's this, this whole last couple of months, we've seen more than anything. It's an epidemic of the lowest, in the nicest possible way, the lowest form of exercise, which is high-intensity training. And what I mean by that is the simplest form of training to deliver. It's just go. like it, And it's five times a week. And probably one of the most common questions we get asked or um, my, I get asked my, on my side of the training, and probably really you must hear it all the time, is, you know, I'm training five times a week, high-intensity training. You know, is that enough or is that too much? You know, and but yet I want to be a runner. You know, like it's this kind of very um, immature mindset, but it's and it, but it comes from the coaching, right? And the, the education. I think this is what we are, uh, Team Rini. This is what we're looking to to. Well, really, you probably jump in here as well. Is we want to kind of elevate. We're constantly trying to look to elevate the level of education around all this because the information is already there. It's just not being delivered or delivered in the right way, delivered enough in order to the right demographic or to the, to the coaches, and then being passed down through the ranks, grassroots level. Um, you know, because it's it's it, the information is already there. It's just not being delivered the best way. I think I think the information is there. That movement physical activity at that dosage helps people to improve their mental health and the general public, yes. I think where we're lacking in the evidence or the research is, is in that population of people where we've had this kind of boom in runners and ultramarathon runners and trainers, people who've got triathlons and stuff, that we need more research on that population because um, they're not quite elite and they're not in that elite category, um, but they're people who tend to, and I see this across the board and people I work with, they tend to run for stress and mental health management. Hmm. So there's already something there in the background. So running or, or you know, doing ultra events, etc. There's some sort of, you know, enjoyment out of that kind of sense of peace of running for a very long time, you know, whether it's slowly, in my case, it's slowly, but slowly or not. Um, and, and it's powerful. And that's why I do. It, and I love it. Hmm. And it's changing the mindset approach to it. That Okay, can we make space for that? If you want to do that, I'm not saying people shouldn't do it. I love a challenge. Rini loves an ultra. We will work hard and, and run for our distances too. What I'm saying, you're totally right. It's getting coaches and practitioners to go have that conversation with your athlete, recreational or whatever. Ask those questions and find out that information before you give them a program yeah. because you don't want to add training stress on top of life stress. But also I think the onus needs to be put on the participant as well. Like you need to be honest and tell your coach if you're struggling or finding a session hard it's not an ego thing they need to modify and change it if you haven't had enough sleep or stuff going on at work or whatever things need to change and that was the relationship i had with my coach i was able to tell her exactly what was going on that week and we would change it like almost daily it was like let's just change it and i was monitoring hrv at the time then so we used that as well so i think you're right it's it's a coach athlete relationship again it's, it's dialogue and it's open i think one of the big problems and correct me if i'm wrong really but we're getting people who are picking up magazine training programs training by themselves changing things by themselves thinking that certain nutrition or fads are going to help them so it was keto for a while and then it was low carb so people trying to go it alone a lot as well so I can't only blame certain coaches or coaching philosophies and I don't actually only blame coaches because I think as I said the person has a responsibility within themselves to look at their lifestyle make sure you're not adding training stress or exercise stress to life stress I think that's so important I think you have to be really, really mindful about why you're doing what you're doing. So, you know, 
I always say this to people when people say, yeah, but you train and, and you go and do races and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, but I don't do it to attain worth. I like running because I do just really enjoy moving my body, but I'm also very good at going, do you know what? Today I need to prioritize work because I'm really busy and I know trying to squeeze in a run today is actually going to add stress to an already really stressful day. Equally, and I've had this conversation with people all week, equally, sometimes I will forego a run or a training session because actually I want to see my friends and that's the only time they can be there or they can only see me. And and being able to appreciate that prioritizing that social connection is probably going to be better for my well-being on that day than going for a run. So I think what we're always trying to say and what we're always about is that Nobody's trying to say you should never run a marathon or you should never do an event or, you know, we're we're not stopping people because we're all people that like goals and challenges. And there's definitely something there about motivation in that. But what we're saying is you need to be more sustainable and more responsible um, and more sensible with your approach. It doesn't matter if you have to miss certain training sessions in a given month because work's too hard or your child is sick or you know actually your best friend is falling apart and needs your support every single day like you you have to make the decision on on what is right for your overall life and so I think the the problem is so many people that we call our recreational athletes or our everyday athletes, I would say a lot of people and, and, and all the people that come to us, all of them, they're not doing it for the right reason. You know, they're all chasing, they're all pursuing happiness, worth, you know, a sense of achievement through their sport. And so then it becomes obsessive, obsessive and dysfunctional. And that's when we see the problem. I mean, we have the perfect sample to do this research. And I feel like maybe it's something we should discuss as a team because I think you're right. We do need some good, absolute evidence. And between between our team, we have many of us that can do academic research. So it might be something that we do um, moving forwards. But yeah, I think, God, Chris, you and I have done this podcast for three series now and it's always been about education whether that's education coaches, educating athletes, educating parents, educating carers, like it's always been about education. And that's the only reason we do what we do. I mean, just to be a great coach, like to be a great coach, like Bernie, you're a great coach, like Rini, you're a great coach, like to be a great coach is to be, you know, to care. How are you, Chris? Thank you very much. He um, is. He is. But no, it's just to care about the variables of that individual, right? Like we want their health is first. For health, your health is everything. Like if you want longevity in anything, you've got to look after num- like yourself. Like you've got to look after those basic things, you know, sleep, nutrition. If you want to be able to run when you're an 80-year-old, per- you know, 80-year-old woman or man or woman, you've got to look after your health. Like performance, yes. Like, and don't get it wrong, we work with some amazing elite athletes and some amazing amateur level uh, athletes in run, bike, swim but the fact is i don't really care like it's about their health and like yes we will get you to oh you know i'll get you uh, we'll get you to your whatever race and we'll you know, i've got someone running utmb self-supported right now right this very minute and he's an amazing athlete however 
I don't really care because all I care about is he he can walk away and he can he's he's back running at the end of next week because his body is strong enough and he's fueled appropriately and his mind is in the right place and that he's doing it for him but yet he, then he can walk away from it and all of this all of these variables HRV and nutrition and training programming it's all about making sure that you have longevity and really sustainability right like being a sustainable human for the rest of you know be able to do all these things forever and like and i think you know sorry chris i was just gonna say, i think you're 100 right but all of that the performance looks after itself if you've got a healthy athlete mm-hmm. yeah performance looks after itself so people will say you know all the time like i'm, I'm gonna go and do a half marathon next week i'm like all oh, right had you been training for that i'm like and they say no i'm like what are you doing you know I guess maybe it's just always been as part of me, my undergraduate degree, how to be a coach, how to periodize, how to plan stuff, you know, and you'll get there, stop adding stuff in so quickly and, <laughs> and not being prepared, you know, you're damaging your health. And again, it might be a challenge to do that and you might accept the fallout and that might be what you, you get a buzz out of, but you're right. If we, if we look after the small components and have someone healthy, then you can get the eek, the the tiny little yeah. increments out of their their performance, right? If you're healthy, you can make those tiny little changes, and that's what makes an elite athlete. And elite athletes are not elite for no reason. Do you know what I mean? They haven't. They they do that. They every kind of little component of the lifestyle has to be managed. And if it isn't, you know that whatever training support system they've got, whether it's EIS or the top level world champion coaches, you know, like in, in British cycling, they used to do things like take their own mattresses around the hotel room. You know, like certain things that none of us could ever imagine imagine doing probably other things too but we will discuss that another time um but yeah it's really important that we think about everything we talk about in terms of marital games like and that's health wise you know relationships lazarini said i always say to people what do you do that is fun outside of your own or training or swimming or whatever it is they're doing you know where do you laugh how do you have fun and the number of times on my insect questionnaire one of the questions i ask is how do you have fun or when's the last time you had fun? And the number of times people come back and say, I don't know, I can't remember the last time I had fun. And that alone is enough for them to go, yeah, I need to do something about this. You know what I mean? Sometimes yeah. you just need to open up the floodgates with one question and they, you don't have to say anything then. Like, what, what more do you say to somebody? Because they know that's not right. I need to find wellness around other areas of my life. I think... Um... This has probably been the longest podcast we've done. And yeah. I know that we could probably we could keep going. Thinking. Yeah. I mean, there's so much here. So Bernard, we probably will have you back on probably series four. We'll have you back on again. Maybe, maybe I'll just leave you and Chris to it and just going to put my feet up. Uh, but um, no, I, you have been amazing. And I, I really, I'm, I really hope people get a lot out of today's episode. I mean, I always hope that for every episode, but today's been a really important one for me because it's, it's an area that I feel so passionate about, but you know, I don't, I think, I don't want people to think it's just me and Chris and that's all we talk about. Like, I want people to realise there are lots of other practitioners out there who are also saying the same thing. So, um, Bernie, you've been amazing. Uh, thank you so much. Um, again, it's brilliant to having you as part of our team because not only do you bring things to our clients, but actually you bring things to us as a team as well. And, um, yeah, looking forward to... Um, well, the next six to 12 months, we've got loads and loads of ideas. So we'll be uh, definitely be talking about that on in this space as time goes on. But yeah, thanks so much, Bernie. And um, before you go, because we always ask this question to everybody that comes on the podcast. If you had to take Chris and I out for dinner, 
where would you take us and why? <laughs> Come on, See, Bernie. I like this answer because I've heard your podcast and I've heard what everyone else says. And I'm really not into food. That sounds really weird, right? So, so I like food. I eat it. It's good. But I'm not a foodie. So what I would be like, I was like, where would I take people? And I came down to what, where do I like to spend time with friends? And it, it wouldn't be a particular place, but what it would look like would be, it would be um, a pub lunch after a nice long walk or a trail in the winter where it's got a lovely fire and you just sit back and eat a, a massive pub lunch and just chat for hours. I think that's probably where we go. Don't know where yet, but I'll find, I'll find that place. We'll do it one. We'll definitely do it. I love that. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, it yeah, definitely fits in with the with kind of a good Sunday wintry afternoon, right? Again, Bernie, it's actually been really an emotional podcast for me because there's been so much you've said that has resonated with me and, and experiences I've been through. So um, I really, like I said, I really hope people enjoy it. And um, yeah, have a great weekend. Thanks, Bernie. Cheers, Bernie. <laughs>